We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by an award-winning writer and the author of a new book, The Inheritors, an Intimate Portrait of South Africa's Racial Reckoning, which explores what happened when a white supremacist state is overturned by the previously dispossessed. Eve Fairbanks writes about change in cities, countries, landscapes, morals, values, and our ideas of ourselves. A former political writer for the New Republic, her essays and reportage have been published in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Guardian, among others. Raised in Virginia, she now lives in Johannesburg, South Africa, and The Inheritors is her debut. Eve, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, you are white American living in South Africa. How did that happen? That's a good question. Um, yeah, so I was raised in the Washington DC area in the US. Uh, my father worked for the government. Um, and I then was a journalist for a few years in Washington and, um, you know, some things we only understand in retrospect, kind of why we do them. And, but I really had the sense at the time that the way politics was written about in in the US, which was where I was doing it, was extremely focused on top, top players and getting these kind of micro scoops of Congress people and, you know, what did, what did, Donald Trump say at this meeting that wasn't the focus at the time that I was there because I was there at the end of George W. Bush's second term, but it was that type of thing. And, um, you know, I remember reading and I had this sense viscerally, but that um, something like a third or up to even half of the newsroom jobs throughout the United States were lost in the 1990s and the 2000s, but they doubled in Washington. So there was this like very intense focus on these sort of core players. And I just had this feeling like there was just a lot else out there that was going on that I wanted to learn. And I I ended up moving to South Africa. I got a writing grant um, and was traveling around. And um, also, you know, I had, I knew probably what people rate, I suppose I was 11 years old in 1994, which is when the end of apartheid was in South Africa. And was taught about it some in school, read everything that was really accessible to Americans in terms of the history and um, Mandela's wonderful biography and so on, but uh, was still kind of taken aback when I moved to South Africa and started learning a couple of languages that are spoken there um, by how archetypal, I mean, it is such a distinct country with very specific issues and and its own texture, but also in terms of types of shifts in power relations, types of dynamics, um, racial dynamics are very central there because it was a an extremely intense segregationist system throughout the 20th century. Um, it had a kind of archetypal quality, some of the the issues people were dealing with, with how do they fit into this new society? What are their duties to it? What is even their identity? Um, who, uh, who you know, really has the power? And it also put certain things front and center that I felt like, especially at the time, this may be less true now, but my own country was more reticent in talking about. Um, the, your, your, Racial identity in South Africa um, in the second half of the 20th century was encoded into the number of your national ID. 
And it just, that is just an example of the centrality that it had to people's lives. And, you know, I think you often speak about um, coming to terms with, you know, just how meaningful is one's identity as a white person. It, it was not really escapable there. Um, you, you, you were labeled that way, what neighborhood you could live in, what school you went to was, um, determined by that. And so, you know, in a sense, people were, it was not something one could really avoid, um, talking about and the, even the residue of that. Now, now the national identification cards do not encode that information. In fact, everyone's ID number had to change because they wanted to take that out. And yet, obviously, the intensity of that history doesn't just disappear because you remove that, those digits from a number. Um, so, yeah. So, so obviously, you moved to South Africa, the racial dynamics are, you know, could not be more obvious. It's, it's an integral part of the history. It's very much part of the current politics. But what drew you to that topic very personally? Of mm. all, I mean, there are many things you could write about in South Africa. Um, why race? There are many things you can write about um, it. And there's a tension there because the country has a lot of um, phenomena and issues that go beyond race. Um, and yet, and yet, it, and and there's on the one hand a desire to sort of stop talking about it so explicitly in those terms. Um, and is yet, that, sorry, is yeah. that a desire in South Africa that you felt? Yes, yes, okay. yes. yes. Among and everyone, that, or particularly among white people. Both. Okay. Um, you know, there were. I had a. I had conversations. I wrote um, about some. Uh, university students, um, black black South African university students. I mean, they are the majority now because at universities because the country is ten percent white only, so, and it's ninety percent people of color. Um, and but they spoke about struggling a little bit with um, who to vote for, um, and on the one hand, uh, feeling quite disappointed in. The ruling party, which is the historic liberation party, the African National Congress, and feeling that that party, A, made a lot of promises that it just hadn't um, energetically delivered on and kept and kept commitments. And sorry, the, just briefly yeah. for people who are not familiar yeah. with Af South African history, yeah. could you give a brief summary? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's Nelson Mandela's political movement. It started in 1912, it was the there were a number of black liberation movements in South Africa that all had a different role, but the African National Congress was the the principal one that Mandela led, and then he was put in prison, and they yeah, um, and so then it became and it was banned um, from meeting publicly. It was banned clearly from participating in politics. After the end of segregation, it became the a kind of formal political party and it it took over the government. So these students, you know, were very ambivalent about this party, but they also said that they were frustrated by the way white South Africans who still wield a type of outsized influence in the media, um, in the economy, certainly, um, as CEOs, et cetera, criticized the language that they used to criticize this this party as lazy as morally corrupt things that touch on a lot of sort of tropes old tropes of um africans black incompetence and that made them want to defend the party and want to vote for it so they found that it was very difficult to just act as if this was now um, a race-blind society. Even if they acted that way, other people weren't acting that way. And um, so it remains 
a very, very dominant issue. I also think um, my family was quite politically conservative and um, very much denied uh, any motivation of race in that conservatism. But it, but right when I kind of was a teenager and coming of age in the U.S. was right after the end of the Cold War. And so the sort of fight that conservatives in the U.S. had against communism and the Soviet Union kind of fell away. And there is still, I think, this question of like, what does it mean to be a conservative? What's really the animating principles behind that? And I remember even feeling quite young listening to like right-wing radio, which I didn't do by choice, but it was playing in my house and um, feeling aware of a racial undertone. And it was hard to disaggregate that from, you know, are these people who lost, are these people who lost their kind of central conflict, their animating conflict, which was a kind of fight with global communism with the Soviet Union and had to find another one, which was against the specter of minorities taking over and taking revenge on, you know, former oppressors or whatever, or had there always been this um, undercurrent in that political movement? And I think it was a way to look at some of these dynamics from another angle for me. I don't want to say that I just was looking at South Africa as a kind of mirror to a reflection of the United States, which wasn't the case at all, but it, it, it inevitably made me think differently about those dynamics in my own family. So. And in a recent article that you wrote for The Atlantic, which, which I highly recommend, um, you say, sometimes I like to tell people that South Africa very loosely collapses hundreds of years of American history from the antebellum period through the end of Jim Crow and well into our future, into about 50. How, how so? Can you give us a sense of, of what that parallel is and what are some of the lessons, I guess, that it sounds like you feel we should be taking heeding, you know, not just in America, but presumably here in Europe as well, around um, what's happened in South Africa, the the, the, the sort of post-apartheid uh, period of reconstruction of a new identity, a new self, uh, in which there's been an attempt, I guess, to rebalance things. But as you lay out in the article, it's not quite as simple as... Um, uh, handing power to one group and expecting everything to kind of fall into place. Yeah, it's, it's funny you it's say funny that, you that line, and I hope, and that, I hope that people will read that article. I have mixed feelings about that line there, because it's quite, um, boils, boils down. down. But what I meant by it is that South African apartheid was explicitly modeled on Jim Crow in America, by, by which I mean, like literally, the South African government sent emissaries to the American South in the 1950s to learn how to implement racial segregation. And so the connections between Western um, sort of types of s solutions is not the right word, ways of of managing racial diversity um, were maybe more explicit than I think a lot of people might be aware of. Um, I certainly wasn't before I went to South Africa. So there's that history, but because of South Africa's demographic makeup, you now have a situation in South Africa where um, people of color, so South Africa has, um, mixed race people who will sometimes identify themselves differently, uh, a little bit differently than as, as black. Um, it has um, the largest Indian diaspora outside of India, people of Indian heritage who've been there since the 19th century. So it's, it's actually very diverse, but there is uh, a, do a dominance um, to some degree, this is contested, but I, I mean, 
people of color have moved into positions at universities, um, being the columnists at newspapers, you know, analyzing the country, um, telling other people what they ought to think about political issues, uh, sitting in the equivalent of 10 Downing, um, you know, a place like the UK, it's like a remarkable thing. Oh, maybe we'll have a, a chancellor of um, who's who's not white. And, and that is just obviously what is going to be the case given the demographics in South Africa. And I think it is, it's really important to look at and it's really interesting to look at um, what happens when you have that history and then you have that transformation um, because there's a section of, of the book that I've written that, that deals with where somebody says to me, who's in government, it's a black South African who becomes a kind of high level functionary. And he says, you know, we never, we never really resolved the question in our own heads, all South Africans of, was our criticism of aspects of South African culture when it was white run, um, was our criticism of that did we just, did we want to be let in to this system? Did we want to be able to move more freely within it and be stewards of it? Or did we want to unravel parts of it? And I really think, I mean, there's a lot of kind of, I don't know, in my view, reactionary people in the US and the UK and Europe who say, you know, the absolute goal of, of, immigrants or whatever is to unravel this systems that we had, that the French had. And, and in fact, you know, that question is very, very unresolved and will only be really faced when you have many more uh, children of immigrants, um, whatever it is in, in in these leadership positions. And that is not yet the case, but that is coming, I think. Yeah, but I guess you use the word demographics in these South African mm -hmm. contexts. And I think it's really interesting because I, I sometimes wonder whether, um, you know, because demographics can be used as a scare tactic and have been, of course, by, you know, sections of the far right. And when we talk about South Africa and talk about, you know, well, the demographics suggest, I sort of think, well, it's kind of not just the demographics, right? It's the history. It's the fact that South Africa was mm. essentially part of a colonial project and that the white Dutch, you know, who are today the Afrikaans, you know, have their roots in Europe. And of course, with time, they become part of the wider society, but they become part of that history as a white supremacist group who have always been present as part of a supremacist system. To want to then be part of the next phase of liberation, if you like, of, of South Africa, to me, suggests a, recon a recognition of the play, the, the real place that white South Africans have in the history of South Africa. So not just their numerical size, you know, 10%, um, because we operate ideally within a democratic framework in which it doesn't really matter what percentage you represent, but it's more so that every citizen is entitled to access to power. But maybe more a humility vis-a-vis -vis your place within that history, which I didn't really get a sense of within some of the examples you were citing, you know, you 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 give a number of examples in in the Atlantic article, for example, of of sort of white South Africans who don't seem to um, want to acknowledge their place within South African history and the implications that that has for the present. And I'll be very concrete. So you you mentioned, or I was going to come to this a little bit later, but this group that forms, right, the the AFRI forum that forms after, um, you know, the, the process of uh, post in the post apartheid era. So tell us a little bit about um, AFRI forum, because it has all the elements of sort of reactionary whiteness, which I think we're seeing emerge in a European and American context, um, what with, with very little of the self-reflection when it comes to that humility I'm talking about 
in terms of where you locate yourself in that history. I mean, I'm just thinking of from a personal perspective. If my history was, if I was, say, living in Morocco, I'm half French. Yeah. I'd, yeah. Be, I'd be part of a legacy of colonial rule within Morocco. I don't know how confident I would feel about wanting to have too much say about how the country's run today, only because, you know, being part of creating forcibly that system, you know, for, for you know, decades, centuries, arguably. Um, and it seems to me a lot of the struggles that you refer to in the book are white South Africans struggling with where to situate themselves in this new era where, as you would expect, it's primarily black Africans or Africans or uh, people of color who are, you know, governing their country. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure, I'm not you, sure know you know how you would feel, feel if you lived for in sure. Morocco. And I don't say that as like you in particular, but something that really st struck me in South Africa is people had predictions um, right towards the end of white rule um, about how they would feel, how much self-reflection they would do in the aftermath. And once they were in it, those feelings changed. Mm. Um, so Afri Forum is a group that basically has conceptualized whites as a minority kind of in the same into like conceptual vein as um, it's a mix of like, they're trying to equate the, the white minority demographic minority in South Africa to like the Chechens, the Tibetans, the Basques to some of these, stateless, as in they, they don't run their own state, ethnic minorities in that and, and in other places. And, and also as kind of the new black people. And I, I say that hesitantly, but honestly, like that, that they are go, it's predictive much more than it's depictive of reality. But the, the claim is, well, you know, given that given that white people treated black people this way um, in the past, when black people gained power, why would they not treat white people um, the same way with the same um, discrimination and kind of brutality? And um, so they've conceptualized themselves as as kind of an embattled or or persecuted group in a way that's very at odds with almost visual realities. Um, white households are still five times as rich as black ones in South Africa. Um, but it's appealing maybe for two reasons. I mean, first, it's a way to kind of confound um, the, 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 the burdensome sense, especially that let's say young, you know, white South Africans in their teens who don't have a memory of white rule have, um, where of themselves as kind of responsible for this, uh, huge weight of this historical past. And yet they weren't, they never voted for it. They never voted for, um, white minority rule. They never voted for segregation. Um, and it also, it's also very confusing because they're trying to make an argument that progressives overseas should see them as the, the victims of like cancel culture, of a new woke mob. It makes a lot of equivalencies. Um, in ways that I don't think are always sort of based in reality. But I mean, 
I don't know if you imagine, I'll just say last, like if, if you imagine yourself in Morocco or if people try to imagine themselves um, in a situation where most people around them don't look like them, where they are actually a, a visual minority, um, I hope people will read the book and read the article. It's a, it's it can be hard to to imagine. I think before it's it happens, but there is a kind of wish that I found among white South Africans to be persecuted as a way of being relieved of the burden of guilt, um, of historical guilt. And that like the, the, the slate will be washed clean if they are pursued, you know, if the land is seized from them. These are presented as fears, but they're also in this article I say is kind of fantasies. It's very disorienting in a weird way <laughs> that I didn't understand until I spent time in the country to be forgiven, like to have your sort of debt forgiven, to be um, just ignored a little bit. Um, so for various reasons that don't relate to like people only voting for, um, you know, people in their race group, but, but white South Africans are just not the dominant force in politics in particular anymore. They don't, they're not, it's, you're not going to get a white president of South Africa, be very unlikely in the next 20 or 30 years, I would think. So, um, and, and so they're drifting um, as a group of people um, where, you know, with outsized influence in some ways, none in others. And, the desire is to, it, it, it's so, it's so unfamiliar not to be the center of attention, even if it's negative attention of like, you're, you know, we, we're struggling against you. We're fighting against you. There's a, you know, you're, you're, you're awful. And there's a way that, that this group in particular tries to provoke attention. For instance, they, they put a lot of lawsuits up for South white South, South Africans right to fly the old apartheid flag. And the stupid thing is that most, most white South Africans, there's no group of people in South Africa that really wants to do this actually. Mm. Mm. But they, it's a, it's a provocation that I think is probably familiar to watchers in other countries, a, a type of goat. And I think it's partly that it's so disorienting to be ignored maybe more disorienting than it is to be persecuted. So, yeah. But but it's interesting you say that because in both in both cases uh you know uh, when either when you're in power or you're essentially seeking attention seeking like you know naughty child playing up but what obviously with much more dire consequences you're still centering your experience right it's still yes. an attempt to kind of make it all about you and you've highlighted kind of ongoing inequalities within the country and so i think what i found disturbing was that you know you quote a number of kind of liberal so-called liberal uh activists or former activists people who'd actually campaigned against apartheid who suddenly find themselves in the post-apartheid era kind of leaning more towards this almost white uh retraction or refraction or i don't know exactly how to dub it but a um sort of leaning into uh, white identity as a form of solidarity, which presumably is the antithesis of what they would have been doing prior to that period. Um, and, you know, to, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm asking this in the sense that, with, mm. is it, isn't there really a, another way of being white in South Africa that sort of accepts the decentering of white points of view, of white precedence, of the centrality of white identity to any narrative, sports, culture, politics, like just that's an, that's surely a sort of, you know, if you campaigned against apartheid, wasn't that what you were campaigning for? Um, so, yeah, there is 
a way of being. And, you know, I sometimes think that excessive attention is paid to these reactionaries and that's what they want. And Mm -hmm. that's what they are gunning for. I mean, they, they just want to be watched. Right. And, and it's very easy to do that. Um, even, even if, even, you know, excessive attention where other white South Africans or other people will make fun of them, but it kind of continues to put them front and center. Yeah. And there, and there are many people who, you know, I have a friend in South Africa who said to me once, you know, I have a lot of, I have thoughts on the country, but I, I feel like it's, it's not my turn now to, to say them. And I remember telling that to my mother and she was very sort of offended on his behalf. Like, well, who says it's not, it shouldn't everyone have their turn? And, you know, why, why shouldn't he write opinion columns and speak out and, and say what he thinks of the country? And, and it was hard to explain to her. I just said, you know, he just really feels like it's just how history is shaken out and it's it's his time to sit back and listen and 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 take things in i mean those type of people fundamentally are not going to be at the center of analysis often um they're not going to be who who we hear on talk shows like inherently um and but that absolutely does exist. And I like the word that you used, humility. Um, I think, I think it's very uncomfortable for white people in a way that we may only start to learn as centrality ebbs. It's very uncomfortable to not tell your own story, to not define it, to not um, speak by, by even choice. Um, but what I find curious about that example you were just citing of the, the guy who sort of feels like, you know, I, I don't feel like it's my time to say anything about the country. To me, that only makes sense if he's speaking from a, an exclusively white interest perspective because if you have something to say which is ultimately to benefit the whole of society then surely that is a perspective among many others i mean it may get rejected because other people may not share your analysis but why you know is it that people are just still trapped in these you know, the, the, the numbers may have been taken off the IDs so that your racial identity isn't ascribed to you as formally anymore. But are people still kind of particularly white people thinking in a really narrow sense of who they are within that country? Because I'm just struggling. You you mentioned crime in your article and the way, you know, and, and you can tell us, please, a bit more about how this disproportionate perception of crime amongst white Africans, which is disconnected from the actual reality on the ground, um, quite significantly, you point out in the piece. Um, You know, I suppose in that sense, if you were going to campaign for the welfare of everyone, you'd be taking into account what affects the majority. You wouldn't just think about what affects like the 10% of people, because that would actually be quite problematic. I think that the friend the friend I talked about would actually disagree with you as I understand you. So when you tr- when a person travels through South Africa, whether the, uh, a white person, whether they're white South African or even an expat who looks like you or me, they will get called boss all the time. Um, they will be deferred to reflexively. Um, and I, his point or his attitude, as I understood it, was that he, he wants to be aware of that kind of psychological infrastructure that still exists, um, that, that leads a lot of his black countrymen to potentially instinctively, uh, defer to him 
because that was how you used to survive. That's how it's always been. So, so here, you know, there can be a kind of uh, idea that if someone like him um, suggests, let's say, what should be done about inequality, what should be done about um, infrastructural decay, what should be done about crime, that his voice now will just be taken as one voice among the democratic cacophony and the many, you know, and, and proportionately as, as sort of it should be. He, I think, would say that it's still not like that, that he, he will be deferred to. So, mm. so I found this idea a little uncomfortable, not coming from South Africa, but he said, you know, I think it's in a way my duty to not speak. Um, I, it just feels a little bit easy. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, you know that people are going to, you know, hold on to um, hierarchical attitudes, which inevitably, you know, after so many years of that being, in, in, you know, imbibed in the culture, it's not going to disappear overnight. Yeah. But if you know that, then, you know, there are things you can do. You can, for example, when somebody calls you boss, you can say, hey, buddy, I prefer if you just call me Joe or whatever your name is, like, you know, or, or, or when you create, um, uh, you know, policies, you you deliberately uh, form groups that are comprised of other people and you encourage them to bring forth their ideas. And, you know, you suggest yours, but you also temper that within like there's so many other ways that don't involve saying, oh, I'm out. You know, this is no longer my fight. It just feels almost like a childish teenage you know like oh well if i'm not going to be the center of the party then i'm out and there were all kinds of like white fragility excuses that i felt like i was reading in your piece for it you know like oh well you know um it's not our time or you know but ultimately if the welfare of south africa of all south africans is the objective how do you get to abdicate from that? You only get to abdicate because of privilege. You only get to step out of that because you benefit from white privilege enough that you can continue to move through the country without worrying about the politics. I mean, other people I think it's concerned. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I'm not saying you are naive. I think it is a bit of a naive idea that, um, that you, that you know you can just say to people like oh hey like call me buddy I mean and I'm and that is a tiny interaction but it's sort of I'm using it like uh, an example of a larger larger types of dynamics like yeah. um, first of all that in that scenario if you're like hey don't call me boss call me your friend like you're still kind of direct call me by my name yeah. just call me by my name oddly it doesn't happen I mean it's so you know it it doesn't always it doesn't it's really, um, I think people encounter there that, that you, it's almost, it's a weird thing. Like, it's almost like, um, uh, I was living in a house where there is a, um, th th there was a cleaner, a woman who came and cleaned the house once a week. And, uh, it was like this sort of hall of mirrors interaction. I, um, I didn't grow up with a, a cleaning service um, and she really wanted to wear a maid's uniform, like an old school, like, like frilly cap, like, like a, just a really, and I, I found that really, like, I just was like, you, you do not have to wear that. Um, and, um, and yet she wanted to wear it. She insisted on it. Um, it also was a situation where I I was told by the white South Africans who owned the property that I could not not have her as a maid because if if she was let go from that position, that she would have no job at all because the unemployment rate is, is stratospheric and the whole economy is set up with these types of inequity, you know, power relations. And I could pay her a ton more, which I did, but like 
it, it, it was so hard to extract oneself on both sides from these types of of scenarios. Um, and she, it was also very difficult for me to, and in a way even disingenuous. I mean, I really struggled with like, okay, well, how do I interact with this person? Um, can I tell her not to do certain things that I think are like demeaning that she's historically done in this house, but she was insisting on doing them. I'm just using that as an example of the difficulty of, of extricating oneself from these types of, and so it's true. Like, you know, was, was my, the friend that I cite, the choice to kind of disengage and almost like in a kind of, play acting way maybe to like sit in the space that he imagines black people used to of being sort of like voiceless and like being led and being directed and being told what to do like is that the ant that also doesn't seem good um i think that it's something that one wrestles with um in in a society that's undergoing these uncomfortable transitions for a really long time. It's also though, you know, it's um, really hard in a society that was as racialized as South Africa, but I think that, the, that, that we don't realize the extent yet, the extent to which ours are, which sounds strange because I know a lot of people think we talk about race all the time, but um, they're under apartheid, white neighborhoods, which were white only and were delineated. They got um, repaved every few years. They, they got repaved all the time. They also had pretty good electricity uh, connections. They seemed quote unquote developed first world. Um, and, uh, and, and people did not go, I mean, well, you were not, Technically, you were not allowed to enter black neighborhoods as a white person under apartheid because they wanted to kind of pretend that the discrimination was equal. Not that, you know, so like, but people just didn't really go. And so the perception, the very real perception or very felt perception among white South Africans now can be of profound infrastructural decline and um, new problem, you know, blackouts, electric blackouts. Mm -hmm. um, I had many white South Africans that I met told me very sincerely that they, f they believed that South Africa was 70% white under apartheid because they, that was what they saw. And it's easy for people in Europe or people in the US to kind of say, oh my God, well, you just didn't educate yourself or like to laugh at that. But the number of people I grew up with, so Washington DC is a city that's segregated effectively by a river um, and it's a majority black city. And it's also sort of segregated, it has a north, a Western and Eastern halves. The people I grew up with who consider themselves quite lefty, they never, ever, 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 ever went to those neighborhoods. They don't know them. And so when those amalgamate, I mean, there can be a real perception that people start to have that things are coming apart, things are changing, things are going downhill. It's it's more like people didn't know their own country. They didn't know their own society. They, they didn't know their own world. They didn't know the reality. Only half of South Africans in the early 90s had electricity lines at all. Mm. And yet it's so it's it's a real struggle to wrestle with like just the fact that what you see around you and what you experience, it looks like negative change. So do mm. you then say like, wow, this things are getting really bad. There's like more potholes and I'm I'm citing that it sounds stupid but people are really upset about potholes. So um, I'm sure because <laughs> yeah, in in white worlds, potholes are a, a real priority. It's a um, I mean, it messes up your car, but like it does, it yeah. does, it does. But it but I guess ultimately the question is, you know, when when you say some people believe that South Africa was seventy percent 
white, you know, um, it's again that sort of centering of whiteness in our narratives, which, you know, is true here. It's true in America. It's it's, it's true uh, in many places. But I guess, uh, you know, you mentioned your personal examples. I really think a lot of anti-racism is uh, in the in is actually in the personal. It's in how you deal with the the person who's been sent as a maid to your home. You know, it's in mm-hmm. how you speak to the driver who comes to pick you up. It's in how you deal with people who have been placed in positions of structural inequality, structurally inferior positions that are rooted in a history that you are a part of. And I think that, you know, that doesn't mean you're going to change it through one interaction, but you do create precedents, I think, in, in you know, in, in potentialities of other ways of doing and being, which ultimately is how change, I think, is affected. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you um, about this, if, if I could just read out this, this one particular quote that stuck out for me. Um, you say, white people rarely articulated these feelings publicly, but in private with friends and acquaintances, I encountered them over and over. One white friend and former anti-apartheid activist who didn't want to be identified in order to talk freely told me that after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission publicized much of what black South Africans had faced under apartheid, she felt humiliated to recall what she and her friends had once considered resistance. Gestures like having a warm exchange with a black maid or skipping class to join an anti-apartheid march. She said that sense of embarrassment made her shy away from politics as she did the slow dawning recognition, as did the slow dawning recognition that black people, many of whom had worked in white people's houses under apartheid, knew much more about the lives of white people than white people knew about black lives. My friend had never even seen the inside of a black person's home so much in that particular paragraph but I mean um how did you feel listening to those perspectives because reading it back to me I feel a sense that you know um this idea of of humiliation despite obviously one of the main objectives of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was to avoid you know um there being this those sorts of instances whether they were uh, you know, uh, violence or, or humiliation. Um, do you at all, did you at all feel that maybe some of this is a desire to avoid accountability? You know, there are people who talk about how in order to avoid facing being the aggressor, white people flip into victim mode. So instead of having to confront the fact that maybe it wasn't that progressive to kind of have a warm exchange with a black maid, maybe it wasn't that progressive to, uh, you know, skip class to join an anti-apartheid march when, you know, um, there were, you know, apartheid was extremely serious. I mean, skipping class is serious, but, you know, the idea that you... um, had of yourself versus the idea that you now need to confront as you see yourself through other people's eyes. You know, Bell Hooks talks about whiteness as, as terror, you know, and very few white people are confronted with what it is to be perceived through the eyes of those who are non-white. And I, it feels to me like mm. in that in that particular paragraph, we're talking about white people slowly realizing that the picture in the mirror but wanting to not see it so badly that we're like turning inwards into this sense of like we're now the victims even though the evidence doesn't seem to substantiate that yeah it just occurred to me i mean i think i think that's true i think there is this this victim mode and it's you know sometimes it's portrayed as quite utilitarian so a way for i don't know like Le Pen or whatever to sort of retain, or Peter Hitchens, I don't, to retain like a kind of influence and it, and it's, and it's attributed to like assholes. Sorry. I don't know if I can say that, but, um, okay. And I think one of the things that I was trying to reveal with this, um, consideration is like, it comes for a much wider range of people than I think are would anticipate. So in this Atlantic excerpt, which is of a a much larger book, but um, I I really talk about people who were seriously anti-apartheid and and 
who were who took real risks actually um, in the 80s to split with their white sort of leaders and 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 oppose it and the kind of discomfort comes even for those people and and I think you know we're there's this discussion sometimes of like why should we be stuck in this ancient past and be apologizing for Cecil Rhodes or apologizing for slavery or apologizing for de Gaulle or whatever it is I actually think that that's such a that that we're even people are even sort of anguished over that or angry or talking about that because it's a reflection of of something more individual and more internal, which is the way one's own past um, comes into question as as actually the experiences of people of color uh, start being revealed more. And it it changes, you know, one of the things that I tried the most to wrestle with in this book was what it does to people to have their pasts changed and not only their presence and their future. So, you know, what didn't you do when you were at university? What didn't you say? What didn't you, yeah, what didn't you do? What what did you do that you thought was kind of... Um, yeah, like lefty at the time or whatever, like protest, you know, uh, at the time, like, and then at a certain point, you're maybe going to look back on that and be like, that was really not enough. And <laughs> a, a painful thing about that, that I do think is something people want to turn away from is that the past can't really be changed in yeah. some ways, you know, so you'll always live with that. Yeah, people will always live with that. All of us. Yeah. I mean, the past can't be changed. But I guess, you know, the one uh, big lesson of any form of restorative justice or rehabilitation is that you don't control the past, but you do control the future. You do control the part you play in this new society, for, whether it's in South Africa, or in Europe or America, you know, the role that you're playing in this emerging new picture that's that's unraveling. And, uh, you know, there is a choice to see it as as scary and people are going to do what we've done to them. Or there's a, there's a way of saying, well, actually, maybe what we fear is ourselves. What we're fearful is what we did to others. But that isn't to say that they mm. will do that to us. So what we're really scared of is who we are and what we did. Because actually, and South Africa is a really good example of this. I think that's totally true. Right? They yeah. said, we actually are not going to do what whiteness did. We are literally going to show you another way of being and doing. And despite that, we're continuing to center whiteness. No, it's going to be the way white people have done it. It will be violent. It will be oppressive and there will be victims. And it's like, well, hold on. Isn't that still like replicating the same patterns in a way? It's refusing to see that actually there is an equivalent and equally valid way of approaching and argue actually a much more valid way because it doesn't require oppressing large groups of people and are there going to be you know potholes on the road along the way I mean probably you know I, I I think when we talk about the redistribution of power which is what ultimately we're talking about in terms of restoring justice in unequal societies we're talking about taking power from people who had you know um grotesque amounts relative to their position and redistributing that to people who didn't have it and and although we love to think of it in theory and it sounds great the reality is that when you have had a lot you're gonna have less and that's not gonna feel great unless you subscribe to a bigger picture um, because otherwise it's just gonna feel like stuff's being taken from you surely and mm. yeah I mean it is this is going to sound weird, I, a little, I don't want to, like, to want to take it out of context, but it is comfortable, it is to, to feel that um, wh whiteness is only about power. And I don't believe that it's, like, that there's anything in, you know, people whose skins are pink that makes them 
behave in a in a certain way at all. I mean, that is just yeah, that's racism. But it's it's un it's it's comfortable to believe that if people who are not white gain the same types of power, they will behave in the same ways because that is an absolution in a way. You can then tell yourself, well, we really couldn't have behaved any other way because this is the nature of power. You know, when one gets power in these types of um, circumstances, structure, one becomes an abuser, you know, whatever. And it's very confronting to see um, black people not like attaining certain types of roles and not behaving the same way because it it suggests you didn't have to behave that way. And it, the whole thing is quite complex. Why so I wrote a 400 page book like and did, couldn't just write like a page, but um, it's disturbing. I mean, it's disturbing to people who had been in power to see it used differently, honestly. Mm, you've got a, a line that you end your article in The Atlantic about uh, one of the guys you'd interviewed who who talks about the hardest thing being the lesson, the biblical lesson. I don't know if you can remember the quote, but it was about, you know, I guess it, it's about the, the idea that, you know, the hardest thing is accepting that somebody that you did wrong to actually isn't going to be as bad as you and there's a struggle in kind of accepting that that makes you extra bad kind of thing yeah this is an Connor writer who wrote um it turns out it's tr- it's true the bible it turns out the bible is right about a thing or two it is infinitely harder to receive than to give especially if the gift is mercy mm thought that was a very interesting way to round it off um thank you so much Eve. we've got our quick fire round now uh if you if you would be so happy to play along um what's your definition of whiteness oh my god this is gonna be hard (laughs) um my definition of whiteness is a thing that was not real it was a construct a kind of Per- pernicious kind of theory that was just a justification. It wasn't real, and but over time, because of the way it was lived out, because of the way it was built out in the world, it, it be- became real. What is the root of racism? History. History. What is white culture? Um... A certain set of ideas about the perfectibility of the world and a certain set of ideas about ambition. What is the most powerful way to resist whiteness? Um, To read the history of the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries and then consider where some of those ideas ideas about what it means to have a good society to advance in the world come from. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? I think there absolutely is such a thing and will be an a post-racial world, but I think sometimes when people use that word, they have a kind of um, eschatology to it, meaning that it will also coincide with a, a world that's ideal in other ways, that's very equal, that's and and that's a historical. Finally, um, is uh, what is the uh, most significant lesson you hope readers will take from your book? That you have to unearth more layers to the recent past. Otherwise, the present remains a total mystery. 
Fantastic. Eve Fairbanks, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to connect with you and your work, is there somewhere that you would like to direct them? Yeah, so I have a website. It's evefairbanks.com. It has the link mainly to this book and also a bunch of my other writing. Um, the book is called The Inheritors. Um, you can find it on Amazon, on any bookstore. Fantastic. Eve, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Please do subscribe to We Need to Talk About Whiteness on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. Thank you.